Hi, thanks for joining me. We started our last episode six or eight years ago talking about peasant farmers in the Ukraine, and we talked about their identities. We talked about how those identities were complex, multifaceted, how they didn't really kind of easily fit into the categories that the people in charge had created, and how that made these peasants kind of a stick in the mud. But that characterization of Ukrainian farmers as having unclear or shifting identities is going to be pretty unfamiliar to anybody who's ever interacted with a Ukrainian farmer in this country. Because here, well, you're just not going to find that kind of ambiguity. For instance, and with apologies to Rick Mercer, if you should find yourself in Glendon, Alberta this week, why not head on down to the world's largest pierogi? You really can't miss it. I mean, you really can't miss it. It's seven meters tall. It's right in the middle of town, and it's in Pierogi Park on North Pierogi Drive. Glendon, Alberta, also, of course, home to Canucks legend Stan Smeal. Heroyam Slava. And if you're already in Glendon, you might as well head south down the road to Vagerville, where you can catch the world's second largest pisanka, the Ukrainian Easter egg. It stands over three stories tall and weighs uh, two metric tons. And if you're in Vagerville, it's only a hop, skip, and a jump over to the west to get to Mundare, Alberta, home of world-renowned psychologist Albert Bandura, no relation to Stepan, as far as I know, where you can see the world's biggest garlic sausage, a $120,000 kovbasa that stretches up into the endless prairie skies. This is a podcast about the Canadian dimensions of Ukrainian fascism. That means, of course, we can't just talk about Ukraine, we also have to talk about Canada. That means it's time for us to take that John Cleese silly walk step across the Atlantic, which we will have to straddle for the rest of this series, in the hopes that our minds will be able to stretch in a way that our groins likely could not. To understand Ukrainian Canadians, we have to understand their dark, gritty, brooding origin story. We have to understand what made those shifting complex identities back at home, something so stark and opaque and in-your-face here in the new country. But before we can talk about the difference in identity from one place to the other, we actually have to move the people involved from point A to point B. Who were these people making this journey? Why were they deciding to leave and come to Canada? What kind of country was waiting for them when they got there? Are they invited? When and how are they making the journey itself? And, of course, how exactly is it that there's so much land in the prairies that comes to be so sparsely populated in the first place? So, in order to answer those questions, we're going to have to crisscross the Atlantic back and forth a few times. We're going to need to look at what conditions in Galicia were like at this time, and why they would actually make somebody, you know, live in northern Alberta of their own free will. And then we'll have to take a shallow swan dive off the Lake Muskoka docks of colonialism, into the loon-filled waters of 19th century Canadian politics. So, for my Canadian listeners, that means it's time to start dusting out that uh, grim, dank corner of your mind palace where you keep your high school social studies. To my American, Central American, and overseas listeners, you're, you're, you're not missing much. Today, after all the thorough discussion and self-indulgent rambling about European history that has characterized our last couple of episodes, Today we finally talk diaspora. How are we going to do that? Well, we'll start out with a recap of last episode, since it was a pretty long time ago. Then we'll talk about the old country. First it's society, and then it's economy. Then it'll be time to spin the globe and talk about 19th century Canada. 
sectarianism, colonialism, alcoholism, all that good stuff. Then we'll talk about immigration reform and some of those policy changes that resulted in the door being thrown wide open. And we'll finish up with a shamelessly Tides of History style case study of a hypothetical Ruthenian immigrant to give a name, if not a face, to the journey that so many real people made. So that's a lot to get through and the clock's ticking. Fuck. So, first things first, I promised a recap of last episode, so let's get that out of the way. We spent last episode talking about nationalism. We talked about how the French Revolution invented it in a way by invoking the nation as a higher political principle than the monarch. We talked about how Napoleon uh, exported it by force across Europe. We talked about how the mid-19th century saw the emergence of, of national movements across what is now Ukraine. We talked about how the central Dnieper Basin area kind of led the way with Shevchenko and all that. And we talked about how Galicia in the West followed in its wake. We also talked about how Galician nationalism was divided between Russophiles and Ukrainophiles. We talked about how the latter won out by the end of the century. You may also remember that Galicia, at this time, it's being ruled by the Habsburgs of the Austrian Empire, who took it over from the Polish but left a lot of the kind of Polish gentry upper crust in place, while the rest of what we now call the Ukraine is being ruled by the Russian Empire under the Romanovs. Okay, good enough. Today, we're going to talk less about grand political machinations, and we're going to stay a little bit more down to earth, hopefully get some finer grained looks at the groups and the experiences and the individuals that these names on maps actually represent. So in order to move us from these broader macro historical trends down to, you know, the everyday life nitty gritty, we're going to take a look at an incident that shows us just kind of how far away peasants' actual opinions and, uh, lived experiences were from the sorts of maybe presumptuous grand political projects like national revolutions in the hope that it'll kind of bring us back down to earth just like it did one unfortunate group of would-be national revolutionaries. So you'll recall that Austria wasn't the only beneficiary of Poland being split up and how two other great powers, Russia and Prussia, also partitioned Poland between them. After the Congress of Vienna in 1815, and we're going to speed through this because I said we would, all the powers of old Europe sat down to drink wine and schmooze for like over a year in between redrawing the map of Europe that that lowborn bastard Bonaparte 
had so rudely upended. Those three partitioning powers, they were all after Krakow. Krakow is pronounced Krakow, but whenever I say Krakow, I feel like I'm saying Barcelona. I, I, I don't have it in me. Anyway, the free, independent, and strictly neutral city of Krakow was the result because, you know, like it's like three kids bickering, right? What happens? None of them get it. This free city of Krakow's uh, lack of customs duties make it a burgeoning center of commerce and trade in between those three parts of Poland that the great powers have taken. Now, with all that economic activity, with all that commerce and trade, come the liberal ideas that often accompany, you know, the formation of that bourgeois middle class that we talked about also last episode. The Polish themselves were none too pleased with having their country divvied up like it was the last paczki in the box, and so they depending on who you ask, took to or invented this uh, nationalism stuff like fish to water. In 1846, only two years before that big tidal wave of revolution is going to sweep Europe in that springtime of nations in 1848, a relatively small group of Polish academics and some student activists and even a few woke progressive aristocrats instigate a popular revolt in Krakow, and this is aimed at sparking kind of a broader Polish independence movement. Now, inside the city, the revolt went pretty well to begin with. The Austrian garrison is routed, but unsurprisingly, there's almost immediate infighting between the leaders in the days that follow. And that's always a risk with a popular uprising, but when your popular uprising is led by academics, it's, it's more or less inevitable. The revolutionary government, nevertheless, it does manage to declare a number of changes in this brief tenure it has. It doesn't just promote Polish independence, it also does things like curb the worst parts of serfdom. It ends the aristocratic entitlement to peasant labor, and it gives everyone the vote. Uh, none other than Karl Marx at one point uh, would praise the uprising as being one of the first in Europe to plant the flag of social revolution, as he described it. But the leaders of the revolt knew that in order to survive, it would have to spread outside the, the narrow confines of the city and the immediate environs. Thus, they sought to gain support from the Galician peasants in the surrounding countryside, which, unlike Krakow, was ruled directly by the Austrian emperor. Now, the reason I say Galician peasants and not Polish peasants or Ukrainian peasants is because that's just the best word for them. It doesn't make a lot of sense to just call them by what they would be called if they were still around today. These are anachronistic labels, right? And as we're about to see, they certainly didn't label themselves that way. So as these bright-eyed, idealistic, would-be Polish uh, national revolutionaries, you know, think, think Krakow DSA here, go out into the countryside to try to garner support, they make an appeal to peasants in, in terms of self-interest, right? In terms that they've made these social reforms that will benefit the peasants and therefore the peasants should support them. But the response they get is less than welcoming. Uh, in his book, The Habsburg Empire and New History, Peter Judson includes one response that was recorded as having come from a Galician peasant uh, addressed to his would-be Polish benefactors of higher status. I quote, No, honorable sir, it will not be that way. You want to drive the most merciful lord, referring to the Habsburg emperor ruling from Vienna, from the land in order to bring ruin upon the country because, as my grandfather told me, Back in the time of the Commonwealth, lords were allowed to beat their peasants. There was no one to whom the peasant could complain. If you could expel the emperor from the land, then each of you would want to play the king, and you would beat the peasants just as you did back in the days of the Commonwealth. Unquote. Strong words are not the only way that the Galician peasantry make their distaste for this whole uprising business clear. In what was to become known as the Galician slaughter, I guess that's kind of a spoiler, the peasants almost immediately set upon not only their aristocratic landlords and their adult family members and some unlucky manor employees, but they also attempt to destroy all the documents that bound them to the system of serfdom, 
right? The legal writs for these things. And this is a mainstay of peasant revolts throughout the ages for obvious reasons. Uh, angry Galician peasants may have killed upwards of a thousand Poles in the violence that followed, and they supported the Austrian army to the hilt as it marched through the land to Krakow to strangle the revolution in the cradle. Now, sources differ as to whether or not the Habsburg authorities played any role in inciting the peasants to revolt against their would-be liberators. Some say there was a plot afoot from imperial agents to exploit their ignorance to crush the rebellion. You know, people wonder if there was collusion between imperial authorities and the peasants that would have incited them to take action, or if they just did it of their own accord and the Habsburgs were as horrified as anybody else. Uh, all we know for sure is that the peasants doomed the rebellion. And we can also be sure that afterward they were all told to get back to work immediately if they knew it was good for them. This dynamic where the great unwashed seemingly goes against its own self-interest and chooses allegiance to like a king or an emperor over other elements of the upper classes is about as old as time, right? We can talk about everything from the Roman masses preferring Caesar to those stuck-up patricians in the Senate. You know, the old expression is, if only the Tsar were here to see how his officials are treating us, surely he would be horrified. Uh, you see this with popular support for Jacobite movements in the British Isles, that sort of thing. And, of course, you get a plain big whiff of it in the present day. Here, I, I suppose, Trump would be the kind of similarly physically grotesque Emperor Ferdinand. You're going to want to Google image search Emperor Ferdinand, an all-time dome on that guy. And these kind of upper-class nationalist revolutionaries would be the, the Democrat, the deep state pedos trying to undermine him. Of course, it's not a perfect metaphor. The peasants' fears about Polish rule were mistaken, but not completely unsubstantiated, right? They had those long memories that stretched back to the time of the Commonwealth. And as far as political changes went, they were more than willing to take matters into their own hands by burning all those documents. But at the end of the day, this abstract conception of the nation didn't mean anything to them. So in the end, even though the revolutionaries' pleas were probably sincere, they fell on deaf ears. So. Why are we starting this episode with the Krakow uprising? Firstly, uh, it, it made me think of current events, and it's you know it's it's kind of funny. Secondly, uh, I think it does a good job showing how yeah sure you know the salons of Paris and Berlin they're talking about all this high-minded, cutting-edge political stuff, but on the ground you know it's the same old shit for the most part. Not everybody has time for these ideas. Thirdly, I think it's a good segue into the economic social structures of, of 19th century Galicia that we're going to be talking about a little bit. And finally, and probably most importantly, I think it's just a good way to show that Galicia is a terrible place inhabited by people who don't have a clue. So let's take a look at this area that's about to become the source of most Ukrainian immigrants to the Canadian prairies. Austrian Galicia, officially known as the Kingdom of Galicia and Lodomeria, uh, I don't know what Lodomeria is, so it can't be that important, is divided into two parts, uh, Western and Eastern. The West is mostly Polish-speaking and Catholic, and the East is mostly Ruthenians. Again, I can't call them Ukrainians because they wouldn't have called themselves that, and they don't usually start until after they get to Canada, but that's getting ahead of ourselves. So the vast majority of these Ruthenians are peasants, and the vast majority of those peasants are, are dirt poor. Only a small percentage of Ruthenians overall are literate, and the great majority of those were the clergy, and that's a phenomenon that's going to be important later. Above them, in economic terms, if not above them in social terms, are the Jews of Galicia. They mostly speak Yiddish. They mostly practice their religion in a way that today we would call orthodox. Uh, this contrasted with the Reform Judaism and the kind of spirit of assimilation into mainstream culture that was going on in, in Central and Western Europe at this time. 
So the Jews dominate trade and commerce in the region of Galicia, and this is a phenomenon that, uh, as we talked about in the first episode, it's got its roots in the Middle Ages. If you take the only guy in town who knows how to read, and you let him loan money at interest, which nobody else can do, and then you don't let him own any land, well, you know, guess what kind of work he's going to get into. So Galician Jews, they enter into kind of mercantile practice out of necessity, but they're quite well established in it by the 19th century. Uh, in his excellent work, uh, The Golden Age Shtetl, A New History of Jewish Life in East Europe, uh, author Jonathan Petrovsky-Stern shows how Galician Jews are making up the vast majority of transits over international borders. So like just over the border with Russia in Podolia, around 1800, there were 858 Jewish guild merchants compared to 80 Christians. And Petrovsky-Stern shows with old customs archives and stuff that the Jews of Galicia were the only movers and shakers around, so to speak. For this reason, uh, Jews are overrepresented among townspeople. Most of the taverns that peasants would visit to drown their quite considerable sorrows uh, were also run by Jews, uh, as were most of the traveling marketplaces that small communities relied on in order to buy things like textiles, household goods that weren't available in a small, in a small village. In everyday life, the Jews of Galicia were not infrequent targets for the surrounding Gentile population, both for religious reasons and economic reasons. But there are relatively few of those kind of mass outbreaks of organized popular anti-Semitic violence in this period in Austria. Jews are a big part of the history of Galicia during this period, but they're not so big a part of the history of Galician immigration to Canada in this period. And the reason for that is, if you're a Galician Jew and you really want to leave, why on earth would you go to, you know, a windswept homestead in northern Saskatchewan when you can just go to Vienna, where you already have an established community, where your skills are more likely to be useful, etc. So for that reason, they're not so much leaving the continent. I mentioned that there weren't any kind of large-scale eruptions of anti-Jewish violence in, during this period. That's certainly not to say that there isn't rampant anti-Semitism, especially by modern standards. But especially kind of later in the 20th century, a lot of Jews in Europe remember this period of the Austro-Hungarian Empire as something of a golden age. For instance, like a fifth of Austrian reserve officers are Jews at a time when very few other European militaries are promoting Jews at all. Jews form the professional class of Vienna. You know, this is the great age of artistic expression and innovation of Freud and, and Mahler and all these sorts of people, and towards the end of the First World War, when most of the constituent peoples of the Austro-Hungarian Empire have totally abandoned it, some of the last people to stay really kind of genuinely loyal to the empire are the Jews for these reasons. But the single biggest thing that Austria-Hungary has going for it in terms of its relations with its Jewish people is that it's right next to Russia, where being Jewish in kind of the latter half of the 19th century is frequently pretty nightmarish. I mean, this is a time when pogroms are being regularly incited or erupt on their own, depending on who you ask. But it's why there's a ton of Jewish immigration from the Russian Empire, but comparatively little from the Austro-Hungarian Empire. So uh, Jews were very important to our third class of people that we're going to talk about, which is the Polish landed gentry. The Polish gentry cared, in, in Marx's words, chiefly about ground rent. Uh, they have absolutely none of that kind of roll-up-your-sleeves entrepreneurial spirit that you need in order for the whole sort of capitalism thing to get going. Uh, immediately after partition, the emperor brought in a bunch of new reforms that did things like end serfdom and, you know, kind of developed the region economically, and they failed in the face of lockstep opposition from this local aristocracy. All they wanted was as much agricultural surplus as they could possibly squeeze out of their peasants. 
So Poles, by which we mean Polish-speaking Catholics, they're also overrepresented in towns. Most townspeople who aren't Jews are Poles. I should also point out here that just like I was describing the Jewish experience in Galicia as a specific Jewish experience that wouldn't have been typical for everywhere in Europe, ditto for the Poles. Uh, of course, in Poland or even in Western Galicia, most of the peasants would also have been Polish. It's only in Eastern Galicia that they tend to form the ruling class and they're only for very specific historical reasons from episode one. Above all three of these groups, Ruthenians, Jews, and Poles, we have a thin strata of like imperial officials and these people had a great deal of power, even though there weren't many of them. Some of these officials are from Austria. Most of them are German-speaking Bohemians. By Bohemian, I mean Czech. Bohemian in its modern usage to mean like, you know, an unconventional artistic uh, lifestyle of, at the urban fringe or whatever. That becomes a common usage of the word Bohemian because it gets its name from Romani people that were living near Paris at the time when all those uh, Impressionists and whatnot were. And so that lifestyle became known as Bohemian, but the only reason they called the Romani that is because Bohemia was the Romani's last stop before they got to Paris. The point is that Bohemia is what is now the Czech Republic, and Bohemians are Czechs. Uh, these Czech officials are very popular with the peasants because they see them as, you know, they associate them with those sorts of modernizing reforms that had the potential to actually improve the lot of the peasants. And for the same reason, the gentry absolutely despise them. So we have a situation where kind of the closest people to capitalists around, although it feels like a stretch to call them any kind of, you know, proto-bourgeoisie in waiting, are members of a somewhat prosperous but totally politically disempowered minority religious group. Political power is held by a conservative elite presiding over a system that wasn't technically feudalism anymore, but that really looked a lot like feudalism when you kind of squinted and tilted your head. And as you may guess, this isn't really a winning formula for economic development or social development or cultural modernization or anything. Oh, except anti-Semitism. It's a really, really good formula for anti-Semitism. More on that later. The name of the game, economically, in Galicia in the 19th century, is poverty. Which in some ways doesn't seem like a strong enough word. Maybe destitution or deprivation or something. Despite those reform efforts from Joseph II, Later Austrian economic policy tends to treat Galicia as, as basically like an internal colony. It could provide raw materials and food to the rest of the empire. It was a dumping ground for inferior farm goods from the Austrian manufacturing industry that you've never heard of for good reason. And this suited the Polish gentry just fine because it made them into, to keep this colony metaphor going, into a sort of comprador class, because their wealth was based on selling agricultural goods. And while there are some, you know, workshops, small-scale production in towns, this is mostly for local consumption. There's no railways, there's not many seaports, so most of the things that are worth carrying long distance are luxury goods, right? Like fine cloth, which is good for, you know, a merchant's cart that's traveling north and east. But it doesn't encourage any, you know, capital investment, large enterprises, factories, any of that stuff. Austria is probably the least industrialized and economically developed of the European powers, except for Russia, which doesn't need to be developed to be strong because it's a 400-pound gorilla. But Galicia was the poorest part of the Austro-Hungarian Empire, by a lot. I've been researching this for a while now, ever since shortly after I started. I haven't been able to get the phrase, asshole of Europe, out of my head, so I'm passing it on to you in the hopes it'll stick and get my point across. Galician peasants are the poorest people in Europe, period. Their livelihoods are comparable to like the most heavily exploited parts of Ireland or even India outside of really peak famine years, although Galicia does also have terrible famines. And this isn't poverty that's, you know, left over from the Middle Ages or something. I don't want to make it sound like it's 
just trapped in the past. Things are getting worse. There's no, there's no progress here. In 1819, a peasant's plot averages 14 acres and a nobleman's 1,051. By 1848, the peasant had about 9.6 acres to the Lord's 1,400. You can see where this is going. The point is that, you know, they're poor, folks. They're dirt poor, shit poor. A couple years after that Krakow revolt, in 1848, amidst that big, uh, you know, tumult of national rebellions, the new emperor, Franz Josef, he abolishes serfdom, and that's a welcome change, but freedom, quote-unquote, amounted to a change from explicit bondage to kind of like hereditary tenancy that didn't do much to, you know, fill bellies or stop your children from dying of typhus. Such is the power of the aristocracy compared to the peasants that the aristocrats for decades after are allowed to charge peasants a tax that's basically like the value of themselves as serfs that the aristocrats were deprived of when they were emancipated. So these Ruthenian peasants are effectively sharecroppers. And all of a sudden, they have to pay for all the sorts of things they used to get for free, like, you know, firewood from the Lord's land, that these things used to be goods held in common that can now be fenced off, you know, declared to be private property. And this is all, you know, classic transition to capitalism stuff. Anybody who's read about the enclosure era in the United Kingdom, the agricultural revolution, the highland clearances, this is all going to be familiar. Forceful incorporation into a, a, a nexus of cash, that sort of stuff. More stats, courtesy of Oras Subtelny's Ukraine History. Eastern Galician peasants got a third as much food out of the same amount of land and seed as Czech farmers or Austrian farmers because their techniques and their equipment were so primitive, but also since they had less energy because they consumed about half of what a Western European farmer did in terms of food, they couldn't do nearly as much work on the land that they had. Nearly all the food that they got was a combination of cabbage and potatoes, because that's what you can grow on the, you know, crummy little damp, rocky plot of land that you've been forced into. While your landlord is, you know, he's making bank on these nice wheat fields, which you can turn into money with the help of the brand spanking new banking sector that's arising in Vienna. Between 1830 and 1850, the death rate in Galicia uh, exceeds the birth rate just because of malnutrition and diseases like typhus that I mentioned, hemorrhagic fevers that are just constantly rattling around in the population. This is pretty, you know, Malthusian stuff. It's People say overpopulation isn't real. They mean that in a global sense. In a local sense, for a certain level of technology and food production, overpopulation is very real. Now, something that usually, and historically in Galicia, helps peasants' negotiating position is the threat of leaving. You know, voting with your feet. That classic uh, weapon of the weak. Except there's nowhere to go. There are no jobs in the cities to run away to, because there wasn't much industry. Arguably, there weren't very many cities at all. Of course, there was somewhere to go, but it was a very long way to go, which we'll be getting to later. So together, malnutrition and disease become this awful vicious cycle where... You couldn't fight off disease because you couldn't eat properly, because you couldn't work hard enough to produce enough food, because you couldn't fight off disease or eat properly, and, and so on and so forth. There's a guy named uh, Stanislav Shepanovsky. He writes a book about this in 1888 called Galician Misery in Numbers. He declares that a Galician ate half a normal man's food and did a quarter of a normal man's work. He recounts how there were some years where famine was killing up to 50,000 people for like extended periods, multiple years. There are, are like a dozen significant famine events recorded over the, the course of the 19th century. And if you'll remember, we had that statistic earlier about those shrinking peasant plots. By 1899, about half of Galician peasants were farming less than five acres, which is not enough to support a family of any size at all. And this is exacerbated by cultural practices where sons are usually guaranteed a portion of inheritance rather than absolute primogeniture like, you know, the UK would have had. 
this is an interesting parallel with immigration to Canada from Guangzhou, where plots were shrinking for the same reason, but that's obviously another story. So that famed Galician agrarian socialist and patriot that you should remember from last episode, Ivan Franco, the man, uh, he says that in 1899, the average peasant plot is 2.3 hectares, and he deduced from government records that four in five Galician families had a total wealth of between 200 and 1,000 crowns. By way of comparison, an average civil servant made about 400 crowns a month. And one result is that less than 1% of Galicians are even eligible to pay taxes at the turn of the century because they have nothing. And this is at a time when the rest of the empire is slowly but surely starting to industrialize, right? Especially Austria and Bohemia. Quoting from the Polish Academy of Sciences official reference history published in 1970, in 1890, only 9% of the Galician population works in industry, 77.3 are still in agriculture. Life expectancy is 28. The illiteracy rate was 67%. And according to Alison Fleet Frank's book about the oil industry that was to develop toward the turn of the century in Galicia, but albeit somehow without really helping anybody that actually lived there, which, you know, is kind of funny because so many of them end up in northern Alberta and get to watch it all over again. But only 15 out of 100 Galician school-aged children are attending any type of school. Galicia has 27% of the whole population of Austria and about the same amount of her territory, but has 10% of her industry and 4% of her production. In 1875, Galicia is producing just under 11% of state revenues, but is taking up 16.3% of state expenses. And I think that last figure where the government is spending more to administer a place than it's taking in in taxes, I think that also illustrates how it was kind of a colony, right? Because it's something you also see in British Africa or Spanish America. It doesn't mean that nobody's making money off the misery of the people there, but it does mean that those people are in private enterprise or own land. So the capitalist state is making it possible for them by spending, you know, that admin money on things like railways, telegraph lines, officials, soldiers, judges, etc., now, you got to be careful when you're reading Polish sources, because of course, since the Poles used to have Galicia and wanted it back, they tended to make Austrian rule sound as horrifying as possible. The Austrians, of course, back in the day, they did this talking about Polish rule in Galicia. So you got to take a lot of this stuff with a big grain of salt. That having been said, I mean, you know, 28. Not really any way to spin that. That would put Galicia the worst life expectancy than the Middle Ages and the early modern period pretty much anywhere. It would put it well behind uh, places like Austria and Bohemia, where it probably would have been like 35 at this time, well behind Western Europe, where you know, it would be 40 and above. And the closest country at the time of recording is the Central African Republic, where life expectancy is 53. So after all this, it won't surprise anybody to learn that one of the other great things about Galicia for the Habsburgs was a reservoir of army recruits. Now, the biggest reason for this is probably the most obvious reason, which, you know, like the army would give you something to eat. But there's also the reason that, you know, we saw in the Krakow uprising that Galician peasants tend to be really loyal to the emperor as their protector against their local assholes. So, uh, in summation, most Galicians, and especially most Ruthenians, so Ukrainian-speaking Greek Catholic Galicians, are underfed, overworked, alcoholic, underserviced, diseased, illiterate, and ignored. Those of my listeners who were huge losers in high school and actually listened during Socials 11 will recognize these as what we call push factors for immigration, and they'll remember that we also need to talk about the pull factors for immigration. So let's leave our Galician peasants there in their abject squalor and disgusting misery 
while we move on to talk about greener pastures in the literal sense. Perhaps surprisingly for a podcast that's going to have so much to do with Nazi collaborators and fascism and Eastern Europe and those sorts of things, the first genocide that we need to talk about doesn't take place anywhere near there. It involves very few bullets and not a single gas chamber. I'm referring, of course, to the late 19th century destruction of various indigenous peoples of the Great Plains by the government of Canada. One of, if not the most terrific episodes in a long process of colonization and genocide that, of course, begins centuries before Canada is founded as a country, and as various government inquiries have found, continues to this day with things like displacement, missing murdered indigenous women, and so on. This podcast is about Canadian history, among other things. Uh, it's not a podcast about Canada. That having been said, we can't ignore colonization and settlement or settler colonization, not only because, you know, half of the phrase Ukrainian-Canadian couldn't exist without it, but also because it's going to pop up again in Eastern Europe half a century later in a much less successful but more destructive form. So, fortunately, uh, it's a good way to talking about uh, political dynamics that are eventually going to lead to some liberals down the road throwing open the country's door to hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians. So, let's get started. It's the 1880s in Canada. It's cold. It's dark. The economy sucks. Everyone is racist and drunk all the time. The fresh-faced Young Dominion is less than 20 years from its opportunistic and liquor-soaked inception. Canada had been allowed to exist under the assumption that, merely by virtue of its existence, it would stop the United States Army from marching straight to Quebec after the Civil War was over. It was succeeding pretty well at that, but it really wasn't succeeding at very much else. The economy was anemic. Britain is constantly screwing Canada over to keep good relations with the U.S. They keep sacrificing Canadian interests at the bargaining table so they can stay on good terms. The provinces and feds are constantly fighting over jurisdiction and stuff. There isn't very much immigration. The population increase between 1871 and 1901 is like 50,000 people a year. People are leaving for the states. A million and a half people by 1901 have left for the states, especially from the Maritimes and Quebec. Uh, their economies kind of suffered with Confederation. One guy runs for Premier of Nova Scotia and wins in 1886 on the platform of repealing the British North America Act, like leaving, seceding. So things are not looking good, frankly. Now, who exactly are these Canadians? Who is inhabiting this country? Well, Canada at this time is what would be called a very sectarian place if we weren't white. If you were Canadian in 1867, you would most likely be a poor, French-speaking tenant farmer whose constant struggle with many hungry mouths on too little land and constantly being oppressed by a tyrannical church that controlled every facet of your life was, you know, not unlike Galicia, but I guess that's a coincidence. So that's Quebec. Canadians outside Quebec were largely Protestant, largely British. Uh, there's a growing Irish Catholic population in Ontario, and of course, indigenous peoples scattered throughout it, but they have no political power. The Canadian elite is small, uh, but it is harshly divided. It's dominated by Protestants, especially Scots. It manifests politically either as Tories, they advocate tariffs, they advocate sticking as tight to Britain as possible, and they advocate perpetual white Protestant supremacy. To imagine a Tory, picture Butcher Bill from Gangs of New York with worse clothes and a Scottish accent, and they also manifest as liberals. These are liberals by the contemporary definition, you know, classical liberals. They advocate freer trade with the U.S., and they're really lukewarm on the railway. They're not sure that's, you know, a government's place to interfere in the market like that or whatever nonsense. Johnny MacDonald had served as the first prime minister, and then he was forced to resign when it came out that his re-election campaign was completely paid for by the railway companies, and they'd essentially bought him the country. 
Canadian politics at this time is not only incredibly corrupt, but really hard scrabble. There's, you know, fist fights and whatnot. Again, they're all drinking constantly because this is a country whose main industry is producing grain. There are about as many other things to do in your free time as in Reformation Geneva. There's a tavern for like every 500 people. Domestic violence is everywhere. Uh, Canada in general, and especially Ottawa, which had been a you know scrappy lumber town until really recently, just see tons of fights all the time. MacDonald sails back into office in 1878 on what he calls the national policy, which is tariffs and expanding west. The idea is that by expanding west, the country gets bigger, it's better able to rival the United States, and that'll create new markets for manufactured goods from the east to be sold to the west. So MacDonald gets right to work with this western expansion business. He starts by signing the famous or infamous Numbered Treaties, which of course are still with us today. He starts awarding millions of acres and millions of dollars to the railroads just for free in order to do their thing because he'd promised BC the railroad and stuff. And then he gets to work just clearing the plains of indigenous people, uh, particularly the Cree. He does this with a really comprehensive top-to-bottom policy. There's forced starvation, there's coercion, there's a pass system that he creates, he bans powwows. You know, this is a colonial playbook familiar to anybody who's studied really indigenous state relations in Canada, or I'm sure a lot of other parts of the British Empire. Now, genocides and ethnic cleansing are obviously usually pretty contentious, historically speaking, right? The Armenian Genocide, of course, some people still argue about the Holocaust. The nice thing with McDonald's is he's pretty straight up. It's pretty rare that he attempts to conceal what he's doing in any way because of the times he lives in. In 1882, in Parliament, he stands up and says, quote, I have reason to believe that the agents as a whole, meaning the Indian agents who are in charge of distributing aid, are doing all they can by refusing food until the Indians are on the verge of starvation to reduce the expense, unquote. This is immediately followed by a liberal MP who stands up and says, well, Quote, as long as they are certain the government will come to their aid, they will not do much for themselves, unquote. So that's your two choices in Canada where I'm starving the Indians as best I can, and then the other guy's like, it's too expensive still, or anyway, there you go. MacDonald doesn't personally start this famine that's ravaging the plains. It has its roots in longer-term effects of colonization on indigenous health, of course, you know, introduced diseases, of course, the destruction of the bison herds which are still colonial, but that aren't McDonald's specifically. But McDonald doesn't let a good crisis go to waste. So, in the words of Canadian historian James Daschuk, uh, the last winner of the Johnny McDonald Prize for History, McDonald turns the screws tighter because he has a deadline. McDonald has an agenda, and he's using starvation as a way to accomplish it. Now, contemporary political cartoons, they depict him, you know, turning his back on a group of starving indigenous people to hand a cartoon sack of cash to a railroad contractor, taking care of friends of Dewey, Dewey being the big railroad guy. The point is that if this isn't above board what he's doing, it's not like people didn't know what was going on at the time. The only people that pretend that MacDonald wasn't doing all this are people in the modern day that sign open letters for the Epic Times and such nonsense. Now, uh, Daschuk points to MacDonald saying things like uh, during his life that indigenous people should have the vote someday, and Daschuk tries to say with this that he's obviously not just a simple cartoon racist. He's being very sinister and very calculating. I don't really see being a cartoon racist and sinister and calculating as, as mutually exclusive. MacDonald, of course, justifies Chinese exclusion on the grounds of its threatening Aryan dominance. Aryan was the word he used, which is another, you know, kind of sort of eerie echo of 20th century events that, of course, we'll be getting to later. 
McDonald quite overly supports the Confederate States, uh, Confederate spies in the war, or like, if we ever need a lawyer, there's this McDonald guy who's with us to the hilt that we can make good use of. And these are things that are at least coming up to the boundaries of even, you know, Victorian imperial good taste. He's even special in some respects in his own time. But all that is kind of less important to our story. What is important is that McDonald's cruelty kills tens of thousands of indigenous people on purpose. It restricts most of the rest of them to reserves. It creates a residential school system to try to stamp them out completely over the long term. And in doing so, it opens up what we now call the Canadian prairies for European settlement, which was the point. In terms of global history, this genocide, in terms of numbers, uh, it can't hold a candle to the various other kind of contemporary mass genocides of, of indigenous and subject peoples that are going on at this time in history across the British Empire, around the world. It's kind of a high watermark for, I guess, mass killing in general. Tierra del Fuego to northern India to all of Africa. But what does stand out about the Plains Clearances is how much of it is the work of one man, kind of one man's political will. And, of course, because there's been no reckoning for it at all. But anyway, MacDonald, in carrying out this vision, he also crushes the Northwest Rebellion of the Métis against his federal government, and he makes the decision to execute the leader of that rebellion, Louis Riel. This loses the Conservatives, MacDonald's party, a lot of French-speaking votes in Quebec, not only because Riel is a Francophone Catholic, but this isn't just a simple law and order thing. This is... Everything MacDonald does has this kind of triumphalist uh, Victoria Senpai notice me feel to it. Just a really revolting man. Anyway, a few other Tories, they die in office, they get shit canned until 1896. 1896, there is a sea change in Canadian politics. Protestants are going, uh, <laughs> they're going mask off about something called the Manitoba schools question, which we won't get into at all. At the same time, thousands and thousands of British Canadians are in something called the Orange Order. What's the Orange Order? You may recognize the Orange Order from the worst people in Northern Ireland. The Orange Order is essentially a Protestant supremacist society uh, named after William of Orange, the Protestant king of Britain that succeeded uh, James II in the Glorious Revolution. And the Orange Order, today they mostly do things like march through Catholic neighborhoods to try to start a fight, but have historically engaged in kind of more, you know, acts of terrorism and stuff and intimidation. A really startling number of, of Anglo-Canadians are members of the Orange Order until like the 30s? Like really late. But point is that this justifiable fear of Anglo-Canada, along with that bitterness about Riel's execution, the Conservatives finally lose their grip on Quebec. Quebec is very conservative. They used to campaign directly from the pulpit. They would say, uh, Le ciel est bleu, l'enfer est rouge. And that means heaven is blue and blue. Of course, the Conservatives in Canadian politics, hell is liberal red. It doesn't work. Uh, it can't plug the leak this time. In 1896... Quebec swings to the Liberals, and a man named Wilfrid Laurier becomes Prime Minister. Laurier is different. How is Laurier different? Well, first he's a Catholic. He's still a very, very loyal British subject, but he doesn't quite make the same you know, fetish of it that MacDonald does. He's more of a Canadian nationalist generally. He favors some free trade because he's a liberal, but he still has to keep a lot of MacDonald's national policy. Why? The Americans. They're still there. They're still pounding on that manifest destiny drum. They are heading west in a flood, and the Canadian prairies are looking mighty bare. Again, you know, because of the genocide. This makes the Canadian government very nervous. There wasn't really much chance, realistically, of an invasion by that point. Americans we know now, they just talk that way all the time because they don't understand that other countries are real. But the U.S. was a young nation at this time. There's just no way that somebody like Loria could have known that about them. And after all, they had already invaded Canada twice, and they were pretty much constantly making threats uh, for domestic audiences. So Laurier took steps. 
those prairies aren't going to settle themselves. He finds his man for the job in a young Winnipeg lawyer, Clifford Sifton. Great name. If anybody is the main character of this episode, it's probably Clifford Sifton. Sifton and Laurier, they understand that the trickle of Protestant immigrants that everybody wanted, Brits, Yankees, Swedes, it's just not going to cut it. You know, there aren't enough of them, they don't need land that badly, and they just don't have enough kids. So they start looking around the old world for a large pool of untapped labor, essentially. What does that mean? Well, Africans, Asians, Arabs, obviously no good. Uh, even if these men hadn't been racists, and they were, it would have been politically impossible to bring them to Canada, and also probably economically impossible, because a family that's used to farming rice or manioc is going to starve to death on the prairies, uh, no matter how thrifty and hardworking they are. So... They're looking at Europe for both those racial, those cultural, and those ecological reasons. Now, like I said, they wanted Brits most of all, Canada being such a British country at this time. But Britain just isn't sending the types of immigrants that they want. Instead of sending the yeoman farmers that everybody would have liked, they were starting to send people more like workers. Because the land hunger just wasn't there in Britain anymore. If you were starving on your small plot of land in Britain, you'd already either emigrated or moved to Manchester to work in a textile mill, you know, a hundred years ago. So a lot of the British immigrants coming to Canada are workers, and they're bringing a lot of ideas with them that they've found in something new called the Labour Party, which is making everybody very, very nervous. So Brits, not going to cut it. Sifton keeps looking. Germans. Germans are good. Let's get some of those for sure. Italians? Well, Sifton's not so big on Italians for reasons we'll get into. Greeks? Ditto. Jews? Are you kidding? Absolutely not. Who's left? Hmm, somewhere they're desperate enough to make the trip and work unfamiliar land across the world. Maybe somewhere they're good at farming wheat where it's cold out. Well, you know, talk about a match made in heaven. Galicia at this time, just the sub-kingdom of the Austrian Empire, has about as many peasants, just peasants, as Canada has people in total. And we've seen what kind of shape those peasants were in. Uh, bad. They're in, they're in bad shape. We gotta switch gears for a second, leave Canadian politics behind. I don't want to make it sound like Clifford Sifton is straddling the globe like uh, the new Colossus, extending a warm hand to these, you know, helpless trapped people. And the reason I say that is because a small but growing number of them were already leaving, or trying to leave. Russian Ukraine is not quite as underdeveloped as Western Austrian Ukraine, but it also sees a lot of emigration flow, Albeit people in Russia are moving mostly to kind of new agricultural frontiers in the Russian Empire, often in Far East and Central Asia, rather than going west like the Ruthenians were. Not all migration is intercontinental or permanent. In fact, most of it isn't. Despite their relative kind of underdevelopment of industry and beliefs, hundreds of thousands of Ukrainians are already moving around every year just looking for wage labor, you know, some type of a job just to keep their heads above water, and sometimes they do leave Galicia itself. We have, we, in, in the U.S. especially, but I think we have it in Canada too, for sure. I think we have this simplified and kind of self-aggrandizing image in our heads of what immigration was like long ago. And you know what I'm talking about. I'm talking about, you know, you say immigration and we think of like the Sicilian or the Litvak family on Ellis Island, you know, with all the trunks on their backs and, you know, they've left everything behind to make a, a new life in this new country. And it's all very inspiring Statue of Liberty, Pier 21, Ellis Island type stuff. And the recurring themes are always that these people leave, you know, with nothing but the clothes on their backs, and they intend to stay for good. So that certainly was, you know, a certain type of immigrant, it still exists today. But numerically speaking, it's a, it's a minority of all the people that have ever moved long distances in large numbers looking for a better situation. And furthermore, these groups of whole households, you know, just picking up stakes and leaving, 
they're even more rarely kind of in the vanguard of any immigration flow for obvious reasons, right? People just don't take that kind of risk with their whole families unless A, they know for sure what they're in for, or B, they're essentially fleeing for their lives, you know, at bayonet point. And this is the case with, say, Russian Jews going to America in this period. It's less important where they're going. It's more important that they're just not here anymore because it's not safe. The most common type of Ukrainian immigrant is a young man. He's often but not always single. He's looking to make some money. He's looking to kind of, you know, establish himself in a new land. And often he's looking to make enough money to go home and buy land, you know, change his situation at home. So these guys, they're kind of less Fievel Mouskowitz, and they're more Nepalis in Qatar or Nufis in Fort McMurray. One suspects that uh, give us your poor, your tired, your huddled masses yearning to make a quick buck and go the fuck home doesn't have the same ring to it at all. North America isn't the only place in the world that is not Galicia. In 1888, shortly after the invention of the automobile and the roller coaster, Brazil abolished slavery, and thus they create an instant demand for labor. Some plantation owners sought to satiate this new demand by sending recruiting agents to Galicia to fill people's heads with lies about a land of milk and honey. So thousands of Ukrainians go to Brazil. They have a really shit time of it there. They're put to work building roads, railways, clearing jungle and they spend their time dying of tropical diseases, being killed in defensive raids by hostile indigenous people. A little professional advice for our listeners is uh, when you get a new job, always kind of try to casually uh, ask who did that job before you and what happened to them. For a while, some plantation owners in Hawaii were actually recruiting from Galicia because they needed cheap workers, but they were worried that the island would be swallowed up by the Yellow Peril if they went and looked for workers cheap closer to where they were in Hawaii. Now, whether or not you're considered white is, of course, conditional, and we're going to get into race more in a second, but, you know, white or not, Ukrainians, they're whiter than Japanese people, right? So, off they go to the New Island Paradise, where they are also overworked and treated like shit, to the point that Ukrainian immigrants on the mainland actually force a government investigation into labor abuse in Hawaii. In his excellent book, The Ukrainian Diaspora, author Vik Satsovich actually claims that there are still some Ukrainians in Hawaii descended from those original migrants which I feel as though Ukrainian-Hawaiian is like a shiny Pokemon of Slavs. Ukrainians had been leaving for the United States since about the 1870s, but things didn't really kind of get going until the 1890s at the same time as they start leaving for Canada in large numbers. With Laurier's election, right, it's 1896. That's when all these changes take place. Although a roughly similar number of immigrants end up going to each country, there are three big differences between immigration to the U.S. and to Canada, and they're all related to each other. The biggest reason for this is because the population of the U.S. was like 15 times the size of Canada. So the same amount of Ukrainians is going to be, you know, dispersed much more broadly because there really isn't much industrial wage labor to be had in Canada. This is going to have long-term implications, including our second difference, which is that new arrivals in the U.S., they tend to be more scattered around the country, where Canadian populations usually are more concentrated in specific areas. Well, the same number of Ukrainians in Canada is going to make a pretty big splash. But there's another significant factor that drives this pattern, which is that while Ukrainians or Athenians in the U.S. are scattered around coal mines, factories, and whatnot that are dominated numerically by other ethnic groups, their countrymen and women in Canada have a tendency to form a higher proportion of the areas and towns that they occupy. And so, as you might imagine, there's a general agreement that this concentration of settlement has a really big impact on how immigrant communities form and sustain themselves 
But before we can get more into the practice of block settlement, we got our third big difference, which is government intent. The U.S. doesn't have an active plan to attract Ukrainians, partly because there isn't any particular urgent need to fill since it has millions of immigrants pouring in from just about anywhere at this time anyway, the U.S. has never had to do much trouble attracting people, you know? End of the day, there's no substitute for name recognition in the world of public relations. The Canadian government, on the other hand, was after these people, right? It's recruiting them. And as we said, this Canadian immigration initiative, it's in large part a response to the Americans starting to settle the Great Plains pretty quickly. Canada's looking to catch up, right, by firing settlers off into the prairies as quickly as possible. It's the whole national policy thing, right? The thinking is that not only are these settlers going to grow Canada, but they're going to give this new market, they're going to buy farm implements, and they're also going to be a nice, you know, loyal voting block to whichever party puts them there, right? So, Laurie and Sifton, they're out looking for people. So we have our why, we got some push factors, we got some pull factors, we have our when, and at least on the Canadian side, we have a little bit of the who. So most of the rest of the episode is going to be about the how. We've got to talk about the actual process by which hundreds of thousands of people manage to transfer themselves and an entire way of life, you know, halfway across the globe. So to talk about this journey and how it was made, we have to talk about how it overcame its biggest obstacle, which was not illiteracy or poverty or even the Atlantic Ocean or that harsh prairie winter. We have to talk about something very close to my heart, anti-Slavic racism. I'm going to start us out with a quote that I believe would probably represent kind of a middle-of-the-road worldview, where Edwardian views of ethnicity were concerned in the Anglosphere. Quoting here from a contemporary capitally expert on the subject, this is John Common, professor of political economy at the University of Wisconsin, writing in 1907, and I quote, A line drawn across the continent of Europe from northeast to southwest, separating the Scandinavian peninsula, the British Isles, Germany, and France from Russia, Austria, Hungary, Italy, and Turkey, separates countries not only of distinct races, but also of distinct civilizations. It separates Protestant Europe from Catholic Europe. It separates countries of representative institutions and popular government from absolute monarchies. It separates lands where education is universal from lands where illiteracy predominates. It separates manufacturing countries, progressive agriculture, and skilled labor from primitive hand industries, backward agriculture, and unskilled labor. It separates an educated, thrifty peasantry from a peasantry scarcely a single generation removed from serfdom. It separates the Totonic race from Latin, Slav, Semitic, and Mongolian races. Unquote. I'm sure you get the picture, but we're going to keep going anyway. Quote, but the peasants of Europe, especially of Southern and Eastern Europe, have been reduced to the qualities similar to those of an inferior race that favor despotism and oligarchy rather than democracy. Their only avenues of escape from their subordinate positions have been through the army and the church, and those two institutions have drawn from the peasants their ablest and brightest intellects into a life which deprived them of offspring. Yada 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 yada. Thus it is that the peasants of Catholic Europe, who constitute the bulk of our emigration of the past 30 years, have become almost a distinct race, drained of those superior qualities which are the foundation of democratic institutions. If, in America, our boasted freedom from the evils of social classes fails to be vindicated in the future, the reasons will be found in the immigration of races and classes incompetent to share in our democratic opportunities. Already in the case of the Negro, this division has hardened and seems destined to become more rigid. Unquote. Okay, I'm, I'm finished, that's enough. What I want us to notice there is that while this guy is perfectly comfortable, you know, chopping and slicing, dicing the human species up into, you know, taxonomy groups that are sort of really essentially different in a way that shapes their societies and their assimilation, he's not just measuring skulls. He's a liberal. 
The people who really stand out for their racism in this period are people more like a name you might have heard of, Lothrop Stoddard, who's writing at about the same time and writing essentially that races are like, you know, biologically divided into superior and inferior, and their mode of conflict is always, you know, one dominating the other, and they can't really engage peacefully. Now, of course, all these other people are racist too, but they're a different kind of racist, because what you could see there with Common is that he's kind of, you know, he's gesturing at sociological explanations for why these people are backward and stupid and disgusting. He's saying, well, sure, they're like this, but it's only because, you know, the church keeps taking the best and brightest from them, and they have this history which makes them love despots and stuff. You know, some of the things he said in there were, were actually true. For Stoddart, you know, skull shapes, that's enough. Capiche? So you got, if somebody says, Galicians are inferior, Lothrop Stoddart would say yes, and then Common would say yes, but, you know, we can fix them. So this is a spectrum rather than a binary. There are kind of people who believe that the lesser peoples are lesser due to circumstance, and that if we give them different circumstances, and we do self-improvement and reform and good values, hard work, you know, all those kind of Gilded Age Victorian things, they don't have to be lesser forever. You know, they can become, over time, good Americans, good Canadians, or what have you. They, they can't be Australians, but that's another story. So these racists are liberal racists. It's a special kind, if you can even imagine such a thing. I'm quoting Common because he's a major source for another fascinating little work on white ethnicity in Canada, uh, cited by a man that some of my listeners will know named J.S. Woodsworth in his pre-woke period of soft eugenicism. But that deals mostly with Galician immigrants already in Canada, so we're going to have to talk about it next episode, I'm afraid. Anyway, this liberal view that immigrants can be assimilated and uplifted as part of their process of settlement is the ideological basis, essentially, for this Laurier government plan to look past that line through Europe between races to new immigrants. And this is where I get to drop the most famous quotation of this episode. You can't avoid it if you read anything about this. Here's Clifford Sifton. He's speaking in the 20s, so after his time as interior minister, he's justifying himself retroactively, but he's giving his thoughts on why Ukrainians. Quote, When I speak of quality, I have in mind something that is quite different from what is in the mind of the average writer or speaker upon the question of immigration. I think a stalwart peasant in a sheepskin coat, born on the soil, whose forefathers have been farmers for ten generations, with a stout wife and half-dozen children, is good quality. You've got to remember that these are just simple farmers. These are people of the land, the common clay of the New West. You know, morons. Anyway, remember how I said we were leaving politics and Canada behind for a moment? Well, we're back. At this point, even the grumbliest, stodgiest, oldest school, loyalistest, toriest orangeman are recognizing at this point that more immigrants are probably a good idea. But they're still not quite on board with the whole Slav business, because as we've heard, everybody knows. Slavs are lazy, unenterprising, lack initiative, you know, they're just not uh, breeding stock. But like everything in Canadian politics, in the end it just all came down to business interests entirely, and after interminable debate in the House, the CPR stepped in and let everyone know that it might actually go bankrupt unless Parliament started firing European peasants down the rails into the prairies, and fast. And that was it. Debate over. What business needs, business shall get, and the CPR was so closely intertwined with government at this point that it was effectively the greatest driver of Western settlement itself, right? It was trying, trying to create demand for rail traffic that didn't exist when it was first built. But the opponents of the plan for 
Sifton's immigration program managed to get one concession, which is that although fine, they can come, but the government is not to set up offices there to encourage them to emigrate. This is something that the Canadian government had done in Western and Northern Europe, where, you know, the finest of whites could be found. So what did Sifton do? He outsourced, of course. Good liberal. The CPR wasn't the only game in town making bank off ticket fares from immigrants. After all, before you get on a railroad, you've got to get on a boat. And who better than steamship companies to go spread the joyful gospel of the last best west up and down the muddy fields of eastern Galicia? Understanding his incentive structures, his microecon one-on-one and all that, Sifton sprung into action. Starting 1896, you were entitled to five cash dollars from Her Britannic Majesty by way of her Canadian government, which is very roughly $150 today, for every member of a Galician agricultural family over age 12 that you persuaded to come to Canada and could show evidence for. Terms and conditions apply. Participating Eastern European locations only. Offer not valid on destitute families in possession of less than $100 Canadian upon arrival. See Immigration Office for details. So thus did it come to pass that Clifford Sifton, Interior Minister, is running what amounts to a front company for immigration recruitment called the North Atlantic Trading Company that has thousands of agents running around on commission persuading people to make the trip. Sometimes they have to do this in a pretty clandestine fashion, since, when you think about it, these unwashed masses are still important economic assets to the people who lord over them in Europe at this time. If I'm a landlord in Galicia, the last thing I want is for someone to come take away all my good rent-paying peasants and put them in Saskatchewan, where they're no good to me at all. This system of outsourced recruitment isn't Sifton's only kind of value addition to this process. He also has a bright idea called block settlements. Block settlements are a policy that's meant to hasten and smooth the transition involved in immigration and settlement, essentially by creating intentional, ethnically homogenous communities of immigrants that will serve to make their lives easier and attract more of their number from the old country. Not only do they smooth the immigration process, but they also keep these communities physically separate from groups of, say, well, let's call them old stock Canadians who might not take kindly to newcomers. Block settlements are a phenomenon that spread all over Western Canada. For instance, you may have heard that this town of Gimli, Manitoba, has more Icelanders in it than anywhere outside Iceland. Block settlement. If any of my BC listeners are familiar with the part of Coquitlam called Millardville, so-called for a French-Canadian block settlement. This creates a sort of ethnic patchwork across the prairies. Say you lived in Esterhazy, Saskatchewan at the turn of the century. That would mean that you were Hungarian, and you would have been surrounded by settlements of, going clockwise from top, English, Germans, Jews, Bohemians, Swedes, and Welshmen. I mentioned earlier, of course, that Sifton wasn't actively recruiting Jews, which was true, but they weren't being turned away at the border yet. That sort of treatment was, of course, reserved for non-white people. Uh, Laurier's government is also the one that passes the Continuous Passage Act, meaning you have to come directly and like one trip from any other British Dominion, it's a way to keep Indians out, essentially, and it manifests in the famous incident of the Komagata Maru, also at about this time, in which a boat full of Punjabi immigrants was forbidden from disembarking in Vancouver and had to go all the way home. Such were the desired outcomes of an immigration system that had been liberalized, but that still made no secret of its white supremacism. But more on that next episode. This block settlement system also behooved a lot of uh, new migrants from Eastern Europe that were part of historic peace churches or other religious communities that are used to, you know, keeping to their own devices in small, 
tight-knit cultural communities, and have been doing so for hundreds of years already. These included the Mennonites, the Hutterites, in BC, of course, you get the Dukabors, and Realheads will appreciate there having been at least one colony of old believers in the Saskatchewan Prairie. I don't even have time to explain those. You're going to have to Google old believers. So, all told, this block settlement practice really smooths the extremely bumpy road and railway, I suppose, that these immigrants are traveling over to get there. And it's going to be a major geographic factor for the way that the Ukrainian community develops the way that it does outside of cities. And that outside of cities is very important. They wanted farmers. They didn't want workers. Again, more on that next episode. So, recruitment is a big boost to this process. Block settlements are a big boost to this process. We also have to mention here a guy named Dr. Josef Oleskiv. He was a professor of agronomy from Lviv, the biggest city in Galicia. And he saw and heard about the horrible things that those poor Galician immigrants to Brazil that we talked about earlier were going through. And he started to look into Canada of his own initiative as a possible alternative. He ends up going there, meeting with officials, communicating with the recruitment offices. And by the time he gets back to Western Ukraine, he starts proselytizing. He's telling people about the great bargain they can get on really decent land in this faraway place. There's a later superintendent of immigration who is actually going to credit Oleskiev with the bulk of Galician immigration. And whether or not that's true, obviously an important guy who made a big difference. Sifton has three other really big things working in his favor here in his endeavor to attract Ruthenians. They're not really push or pull factors, but they're still important, so we have to mention them. The first of these factors is that the U.S. frontier is nearly closed. The last few sovereign indigenous nations, like the Nez Perce, are being chased off their land or killed. Uh, Oklahoma, of course, was the place that they'd put many of those nations that they'd already chased out of other places. But as you can tell from a map of the United States, that setup wasn't going to last long either. At 12 o'clock noon, on April 22nd of 1889, Everyone who wants some free land literally lines up along the borders of Oklahoma and they fire a gun in the air, and everyone rushes in and stakes out their new land. By the end of the day, Oklahoma City has like 10,000 residents, a street layout, a municipal government, and a newspaper. So if you were still digging in the western Ukrainian dirt, trying to save up for your steamship ticket when that gun went off the morning of April 22nd, you were more or less shit out of luck as far as free land went. So Canada is what's left and Sifton is advertising it as just that, the, quote, last best West, unquote. So, first thing, no more U.S. frontier. The second thing is that this is a pretty good time in history for grain prices. Global populations are expanding, and so marginal lands in South America, Central Asia, everywhere really, are being turned into farmland. Those grain prices make farming these Canadian prairies far more profitable. And the last thing is that farming itself is getting more effective, especially in colder weather like you get in the prairies. Fifty years ago, this whole task of farming the prairies would have been that much more difficult, if not impossible. There are also two other Ukrainian spreaders of the good word of free land that we need to talk about. These are Ivan Pilipiev and Vasil Elenyak. They are two men from a totally unremarkable village in an insignificant valley in the Carpathian foothills, but they're going to be trailblazers, in a pretty literal sense. This village is called Nibiliev. It's a pretty typical Galician village. The soil sucks, there's not enough land. People get by on oat gruel and dark rye bread. These men have been friends since childhood, and like most of the men in Nibiliev, they have to supplement their meager income from farming by doing forestry work for the local graf or count, uh, a man named Sheptitsky, 
they haul logs out of the mountains and they float them down the Bug River for sale to Odessa. They meet some German forest workers while they're doing this stuff, and these forest workers get to talking about this place that some of their relatives have gotten some free land called Canada. After a couple more mediocre harvests, Vassal and Ivan decide they've had enough. They auction enough belongings to buy tickets, they sell their livestock, and away they go. After filling out some paperwork for some land in what was then called Edna and is now called Star, Alberta, by way of reference, Edna is about a hundred clicks as the crow flies from where that giant pierogi is today. Anyway, by the time Vassal and Ivan get home, they are singing the praises of this place. Free land, just a $10 administrative fee. Fill your boots. You know, what's not to like? And they remember later in life being frustrated by peasants whose lives were so hard and destitute, but who were still too scared to leave it all behind. Vassal and Ivan, of course, they don't have to buy their own drinks for a while, what with every tavern they visit getting full up with eager listeners, and this is just fine with Vassal, because he's an enterprising guy, and he has an agreement with the steamship company where he's going to make commission based on how many people he can bring with him next time. So effusive is Vassil in his praise of this new place that he ends up getting attention from the police, which he doesn't understand until he's dragged in front of a cranky Austrian judge who is determined to know why he's stirring up trouble. Why are you telling people to leave? What's the matter, don't you like it here? Need I remind you that our most illustrious emperor has recently paid for the return of 30 families from a disastrous misadventure like yours to Argentina at his own expense? How do I know you're not accepting the same treatment if something goes wrong? So Vassal spends a month in jail, but it's too late. The word is out. By the time that illustrious emperor we mentioned, son Franz, is shot by that epitome of the subversive, dangerous, no-good, dirty Slav, Gavrilo Princip, over 200,000 Galicians have made Canada their new home. But I feel as though it wouldn't be very fair for me to just leave it there. You know, I haven't actually put anyone on a boat yet, and it would also be kind of misleading, since Vassal and Ivan are in some ways typical, but in other ways exceptional. After all, they're leaving before they're invited, really, years before Sifton and Laurier. They arrive in Alberta in 1891. They are very important because they're some of the first ones to put down stakes that others will cluster around. In fact, their farmsteads are the ones that convince Dr. Oleskiev that this Canada thing is the way to go. What I'm trying to say is that Vassal and Ivan aren't typical. They are the Ellis Island coming over and bringing your family for a new life in a better place type of immigrants that I started all this shit by telling you it was misleading. That having been said, we still need a way to talk about that immigrant experience because that's what this episode is about. And it's this need to really bring home the reality of historical experience to the present that demands we ask ourselves, WWDPWD, what would Dr. Patrick Wyman do? And the answer, of course, is that he would create a composite character in order to put some, you know, human flesh on the bones of historical goings-on and describe how these abstract forces could have actually played on the life of an individual. So, that's just what we're going to do. So, let's get into our character creation screen. We're going to call our guy Mikhail Melnik. He hails from near Nibiev, not right in it, but, you know, down the valley. He's a Ruthenian on the census because he speaks Ruthenian at home, and he worships in a Greek Catholic church. But he's not just Ruthenian. He actually has some Crimean Tartar through one of his grandmothers, you know, a bit of the genetic legacy at living at the crush of empires. Mikhail grows up poor, like just about everyone he knows, but not desperately so. His family has a horse that he learns to ride, and ride well. 
Young Mikhail is lucky enough to receive a little bit of that limited education we've been talking about that's just starting to spread into Galicia, but only some. And it's really not surprising, because he probably doesn't know a single person who got a job by being able to read. So, with indefinite dirt farmer still an unattractive job prospect, and like any good Patrick Wyman composite character, Mikhail does what thousands of other loyal Galicians, you know, Tyrolians of the East, do, and he joins the army. Mikhail knew a little bit about horses, and he could pay for some equipment, so instead of ending up as cannon fodder in the infantry, he ended up as cannon fodder in the cavalry. The late Austrian militaries are an almost unbelievable hodgepodge of unit types and jurisdictions, maybe not surprising for a shaky empire with a dual monarchy and over a dozen major languages. Cavalry units in the Austrian crown lands were called the Imperial Uhlans, and Mikhail's unit was based in Lemberg and consisted mostly of Ruthenians. He would have taken orders in a something called Army Slavic, which was like a Slav war Esperanto that they had to figure out so that they could give orders to their men not speaking the language. More on the last days of Austria-Hungary next episode. Mikhail made it to corporal. Uh, the senior officer ranks were largely German Catholics or, like we mentioned, Jews, uniquely among European militaries. One day, Mikhail is on mess duty. He finds himself eavesdropping on the quite interesting and intense conversation that a pair of officers were having. Now, Mikhail was just a farm kid, and it had already been decades since the Austrian army fought a major war. But with the north, west, and east closed off to it by other major powers, and having lost Italy recently, Austria looked south into the northwestern Balkans for expansion, and those Balkans were already starting to bubble and simmer. The various Balkan powers had already fought the Ottomans and then each other in two major wars. You can hear about it in my appearance on La Wisconsin Insoumise, Shouts out. Anyway, war was clearly in the air, and these guys sounded convinced it was coming. Soon. Like, they almost sounded excited. So Corporal Malnick looked at himself in the mirror and decided he didn't want any part of this war. He made a decision. He went to his commanding officer, and he asked for two weeks furlough, and never came back. Mikhail was newlywed to a woman from the same valley, who herself was actually related to the Alignacs, you know, Vassal of our previous story. So some of her cousins talked about this place that they'd been to, or that somebody they knew had been to, where the land was plentiful and people lived in peace with no landlords. Word of mouth had been moving through small communities for some time, but when it reached Mikhail's ears, he'd thought little of it. That all changed when he decided to desert and get away from this incoming war. By the end of the month, he was with a close friend standing on a pier in Hamburg, while, back at home... His wife looked on anxiously from the front stoop of their house while Austrian soldiers shish their haystack with bayonets looking for her newly deserted husband. Mikhail and his friend, who we're going to call Tomas, they set out as single men, like most Ukrainian immigrants did. But they also did so with the intention to farm or to work until they could farm. They weren't bringing over their whole families with him, but they weren't looking to just make money either. He may have been wearing a now-stolen army greatcoat rather than the sheepskin that Sifton mentioned, but he was still exactly the sort of immigrant that the liberal government was looking for. Mikhail and Tom arrived in Montreal in late 1912 after more than three weeks at sea and after being checked at customs for infirmities of mind and body, proving they wouldn't be a burden on the state, all those eugenicisty hoops you had to jump through to get into the country of Canada. They had their papers stamped, 
and they signed them with an X. Passage on the CPR, of course, was free, and it wasn't like they had much baggage. So only three days after stepping from ship to shore, the pair were stepping from train to platform in Winnipeg, which the year before had become the third largest city in Canada. In those days, it was consciously emulating Chicago, both in architecture and attitude, as the railway gateway to the Canadian West. Beneath Mikhail and Tomas's feet lay the same land that covered so much of what is today Ukraine, that rich black earth full of ammonia and phosphates that gives the floodplain of southern Manitoba some of the most fertile farmland in the entire world. This is just the type of earth that Sifton and Laurier had in mind when they looked to the Ukraine for farmers. But these new arrivals had other ideas. As I mentioned before, their region was a poor one in a poor province, and potatoes hardly grew well on their land, never mind wheat. But that poverty was also what made Vassal and Ivan two decades earlier turn to forestry, like many other local men, and it was this forestry that provided them with both fuel and building materials for the area. So for this reason, and like thousands of other Ukrainian immigrants both before and after them, Mikhail and Tom took one look around at relatively treeless southern Manitoba, and they got right back on the train. Besides, they've been talking to other Ruthenians that they've met along the way, and most of them seem to be going further too, to some place called Alberta. But by the time they get there, they're low on money. A homestead is only a $10 administrative fee at the Dominion Lands Office, but with no capital to buy equipment or seed, just the land isn't going to do them much good. So, like so many other Ruthenians, Tom and Mikhail joined the labor diaspora. In fact, there was never really a clean-cut difference between who was a farmer and who was a worker in those days. Many or even most immigrant farmers had to work for wages for all or part of the year, just like they had at home, with the difference, of course, being that now their leftover wages went to service loans, mortgages on equipment, instead of just paying rent. Mikhail's experience with horses got him a job in the mines of southeastern British Columbia, where he drove teams of draft horses in a world that was still heavily reliant on draft animals. In fact, such was the lack of industry in Galicia that Ukrainians in Ukraine today call trucks uh, Vantajivka. Ukrainians in Canada call them truck because Canada was the first place they ever saw one. If you had asked Tom and Mikhail what they were, they probably would have said Ruthenians or maybe Galicians. But to the people around them, Tom and Mikhail were bohunks. Like most derogatory terms, bohunk wasn't very accurate. It was derived from Bohemian, and Bohemia was a place that neither of the two would have ever seen before they crossed it on a train leaving the empire, but nevertheless it's how just about everyone from the Austrian empire came to be identified. The bohunks were treated as suspicious by many Anglo-Canadians, and even by a few of the better established immigrants, as well as by the nascent labor movements that were associated with those groups. That having been said, they were still European, and they were still Christians, and they would never have had it as bad as the Chinese workers that would have taken the worst abuses at this time in Canadian history. Tom and Mikhail saved their money working in coal mines and in copper mines, hauling the material that powered the locomotives of the CPR and that formed the telegraph wires newly strung out along their path. In the fall of 1914, that illustrious emperor's son Franz Ferdinand was shot dead, and once Britain was at war, so too were her dominions. War fever gripped the country. Back east, loyalists clamoring for conscription caused the Quebec nationalist Henri Bourassa to declare the Orangemen hordes of Ontario, quote, more Prussian than Prussia, unquote, 
Laurier the Compromiser couldn't wheedle his way out of this one. There was no center left to hold. He was swept out of office in a major party realignment. With their new empire at war with their old one, and under the increasingly xenophobic government of Robert Laird Borden, Tom and Mikhail were required, along with tens of thousands of other Ukrainian immigrants, to register with the government as enemy aliens. Thousands of them were put in internment camps. But our duo kept their heads down, they reported regularly, and they didn't try to leave the country. Back in Galicia, war raged. The war of movement in the east against the Russians was tearing the land to pieces. We'll talk more about the war and about internment next episode. In 1918, Mikhail received word that his wife was barely surviving working as a teacher's assistant and that the situation in the old country was worse than ever. So, he finally sent for his family, together with some steamship tickets and the address of the quarter section that he'd finally managed to mortgage with his Teamsters wages and had started to build his first house on. The brutal peasant life that Galicia had to offer, and a savvy recruitment campaign born of the liberal reformist spirit of the times, sent, as we've said, nearly a quarter of a million of Sifton's stout-wifed and sheepskin-coated Ukrainians to the Canadian prairies. We've talked about the country they arrived in, how it brutally forced indigenous people off the plains to make way for the railroad and for settlement, how it was persuaded by necessity to broaden its immigration horizons, and how it went about growing when it did. We talked about some trailblazers, some of their obstacles, and how their success fed that of others in making the trip. But the Elenyaks and Sifton and Dr. Oleskiev had started more than just a migration of people. They started a process of identity formation. Without getting too, you know, refugee trauma slam poem here, the move from the one place to the other place was a big uprooting and replanting with a fair bit of grafting too. All at once, these people were swan-diving into a new land, but were also having to contend with a question that they never would have heard before. Who are you people, exactly? So, we've got the people and their pierogies to what will someday be Pierogi Park. Next episode, we'll see how they adapt to life in Canada and become Ukrainians. Hopefully, we'll also see how they rise to meet the challenge by organizing, culturally, as well as politically and economically, and how they deal with the internment and the alienation of being enemy aliens in the First World War. We'll also look back to Galicia briefly to see how its politics are developing under that system of empires that is not long for this world, but that's about to take millions of people with it to the grave. But one Austrian corporal wasn't going to be in the battle line of the Imperial and Royal Uhlans charging into the guns of August in that bloody grand finale of combat on horseback. Instead, he'll be hitching Clydesdales to a plow, and turning the North Okanagan Valley into farmland. Years after, his unit is ground into dust by the Russian armies advancing south. He will be raising four stubborn but healthy children and growing wheat. One of his daughters will have two of her own, and one of those will have a son who will validate and justify the sufferings of a thousand generations by growing up to pursue mankind's most noble endeavor, podcasting. This man, of course, was not actually a composite character, nor was he named Mikhail Milnik. He was my great-grandfather, who I only knew from stories as a hard-working guy who didn't talk much, whose groomsmanship always won his Clydesdales blue ribbons at the county fair every summer, and who kept his Austrian officer's mustache until late in life. While doing research, I heard a story about the 1939 Royal Tour of Canada that passed through British Columbia, and this was a big logistical undertaking that required a lot of draft animals to, you know, pull all those carriages. 
A representative for the royal family showed up in Armstrong and visited the guy that everyone in town knew had the best draft horses. Toto was happy to help, on condition that he be the one to drive his own team. The representative told them that, of course, they already had drivers and they would just take the horses. To which Toto said, no, you won't. Now, like I said, I never knew the guy, but considering that he'd left Galicia because his emperor was about to get him killed, I'd like to think that telling the agent of the ruler of the largest empire in history to go pound sand probably felt pretty good. Well, that does it for this year's episode. I'd like to thank Wayne, Shalan, Mary, and Linda for their assistance in research, and Dan Beckner for showing me the giant pierogi. I hope you enjoyed the episode. I hope the next one comes a little quicker. And until that time, keep your stick on the ice. strong winds that blow lonely seven seas that run high all those things that don't change come what may but our good times are all gone and I'm bound the moving on I'll look for you I'm never back this way Think I'll go out to Alberta Weather's good there in the fall I got some friends that I can go To work in full Still I wish you change your mind if I asked you one more time But we've been through that a hundred times or more For strong winds that blow lonely Seven seas that run high All those things that don't change Come what may but our good times are all gone And I'm bound for moving on I'll look for you if I'm ever back this way If I get there before the snow flies And if things are going good You could meet me if I send you down the fair But by then it would be winter There ain't too much for you to do And those winds sure can blow cold Way out there For strong winds that blow Seven seas that run high All those things that don't change Come what may 
But our good times are all gone And I'm bound for moving on I'll look for you if I'm ever back this way Hey folks, that of course was Ian and Sylvia's Four Strong Winds, maybe the greatest Canadian song ever written, available everywhere. Our opening song, Arkan, The Lasso, is available through Smithsonian Folkways. Also, every time I said the word Canada in this episode, I actually said it with three Ks, it's just that the first two are silent. Tak tofu!